0: Alright. Hey, uh, question. How many of you in here know some level? By some level, I mean Sesame Street could have taught you a word or you could have taken classes. How many of you in here know Spanish? Okay. Alright. We know some people who know Spanish. Okay. So you can appreciate my dilemma. Okay. Eighth grade year. Eighth grade year at Ken Carroll Junior High, I, um, I had been part of a class that basically went three quarters of the year. In the last quarter of the year, they said, guess what? You get, you get like the last nine weeks of this school year off. You can do whatever you want. And I was like, you know what? I kind of want to learn Spanish. I want to learn Spanish. So there was a Spanish class, it was an intro to Spanish class that you had to be in it the entire year for them to prepare you for Spanish one in high school. Well, the teacher I talked to her, she said, you know what, it's the last nine weeks of the year. You can jump in, you'll be behind, but you can jump in. So I went to that nine weeks of Spanish class, got to my freshman year at Columbine High School. I get my class schedule and it says, you know, I've got math, I've got language arts, I've got social studies. And then it says, Spanish two. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm already stressed out. Okay, but I'll go to the class, I'll talk to the teacher, no big deal. I get to the class, and um, I'm trying to get her attention before class so I can talk to her and not even have to be in there. And she's like, after class, after class, just sit down, sit down. I was like, okay. I I guess one class period's not bad. Sat down, and she said, okay, we're going to go around, and we're going to get to know each other. Now, when you have a teacher who says, we're going to go around, we're going to get to know each other, you know what that means? It means you're going to stand up, and you're going to introduce yourself to the class. Here's the problem. It's Spanish class. And so, every Spanish teacher on the planet wants you to do it en espanol, okay? And I started panicking because this is Spanish too. And she wanted, she wanted everybody to introduce themselves with an entire paragraph in Spanish. And I couldn't even do that in English at that time, okay? And so... The whole class, I'm like at the end. I could tell I'm going to be one of the last ones. And the whole class is going through, saying, standing up, they say their name, they give a paragraph about themselves, and after every single one, she's like, muy bien, muy bien, muy bien. That's very good for those of you who don't speak Spanish. Okay, muy bien. I lean to my friend next to me, and I'm like, okay, I, I do not know a lick of Spanish. He's like, don't worry, we're in the same boat. Like, we're, we're going to go down together, all right? It gets to him, and he gets up. He stands up, and he's like... Hola, me llamo Miguel. Tengo quince años. Y mi madre prepara los galletes porque es mi cumpleaños. And I was like, what? I thought you didn't know Spanish. Like, if if you're saying you don't know Spanish, I really don't know Spanish. Well, what he had said, this is the worst part. He said, hello, my name's Michael. I'm 15 years old, and my mom prepared cookies for the whole class because it's my birthday. And so the whole class is really, really excited for Michael, and it's his birthday, and they're singing to him, and I got to follow that. She says, muy bien, Miguel. Nathan. I stand up. I'm like, hola. <laughs> Melamo, May- <laughs> Nathan. And then right there, I just quit. I was like, you know what? Okay, I'm not even supposed to be in here right now. I was trying to get your attention before the class, but now we have to do this in front of the class. Um, I I don't belong in here. And like every Spanish teacher on on the entire planet, you know what she said? uh uh uh." (laughs) ah. En espanol, Nathan. (laughs) Like, no, no, no. See, that's the point. I I don't know how to say it. She said, "Well, I just want you to try. Just try. Fine. Me amo, Nathan. Yo no belongo in hero. Okay? To which she replied, Oh, senor Nathan, esta muy comico. <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm really not trying to be funny. I do not belong in here at all. And in the years since then, that phrase, I don't belong here, you know what? That has, has just rattled around in my brain a number of different times and a number of different places and a number of different areas of life. And as I talk to people, you know what I've discovered? I don't belong here. That's a thought that I'm not alone in. In fact, that's a thought that every single one of us deals with at some point. I don't belong. If people only knew, they'd know I don't belong wherever we're at. And that is really the battle cry of the giant that we're going to look at this morning. We're going through this series, Overcome, talking about the different giants that we face in our lives. And that's the battle cry. I don't belong here is the battle cry of the giant of shame. The giant of shame. And I know it's, not, it's maybe not a giant that we like to think about um, because we all, have, we all have those areas that that giant cries out to us and it screams at us louder than anything else. And yet this morning... I want us to look at a story. It's actually a conversation. It's in 2 Samuel chapter nine, if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. But in this conversation, we're gonna get a glimpse of exactly how that giant operates, but also what God's answer is to that giant. Because when you can see what God's answer is, guess what? That giant loses power. That giant loses incredible power when you can see it. And so here's what's going on. 2 Samuel chapter 8, the chapter right before, David, King David, his kingship, his reign is being established. And the way it's being established is God is looking at everybody who would come against King David and the people of Israel, and he's delivering them into the king's hands through bloody, bloody battle. He says, nobody will come against you. Nobody will come against you at all because I have established your reign as King David. And it's at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, King David looks around, and he asks a question, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. This is chapter 9, verse 1. Look at what David says. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Now, if he had stopped there, and we'll continue in a minute, but if he had stopped there, this would have been a very frightening thing for anybody who heard it. Because what King David was engaged in in Chapter Eight is something that ancient kings did from time to time. It was it was a process called bloodletting. Bloodletting is what ancient kings did whenever they took the throne, and to ensure that nobody was going to pose a threat, they would look around at, at anybody who was a member of a previous king's reign, and they would eliminate them. They'd kill them. They'd get rid of them. And so King David looks around and he says, "Is there anyone still left?" of the house of Saul. And as you first read that, you go, "Uh uh-oh, the king is out for blood. But let's read the full question. Verse verse one continues, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Kindness, David? Yeah, kindness. For Jonathan's sake, Okay, wait a second. See, kindness probably would have had a lot of us skeptical. It's kind of like when you're a kid and, and it's like, whether it's a sibling or a friend, you've been messing with them and they're finally over it and they're trying to get away from you. It may or may not, I may or may not have done this to my sister. And I finally said, there's this rule little kids have. I swear I'm not going to do anything to you, but if the fingers are crossed, you're lying, okay? So I'm like, I swear I won't do anything to you. Come here, come here. And then she'd get this close and I'd flick her in the forehead and who's fun as an older sibling. Anyway, it kind of feels like that's what David's doing here. Is there anybody around? I can, I can show, kind, I promise I'm going to show kindness. Well, um, it continues and it says verse, in verse two, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zabah. They summoned him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Zabah? And Zabah's got to be thinking, "Uh oh, like I was a part of Saul's reign. King Saul, that was the king before this king. And Zabah's got to be a little bit alarmed. But remember, David said, no, I want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was a good friend of David when they were younger. And they one day sat down and made a promise to each other. Promise me that if I'm not around one day, you will always show kindness to my family. Whether Zabah knew this or not, I don't know. I imagine he was a little bit alarmed. At your service, he replied. Verse three, the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zabah answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. Now, if anybody was a candidate to be eliminated, more than Zabah, a servant in Saul's household. It would have been a relative of King Saul because kings wanted to make sure there was nobody even from the bloodline that could pose a threat to their throne. And so Zabah, not wanting to lie, I'm sure, said there is his name, or he's a son of a man named Jonathan. And then look what he adds on here. He is crippled in both feet. Now, why would he say that? I think he said it because he knows what King David has been engaged in. He knows the king wants to do do away with anybody who poses a threat, and he knows that the son of Jonathan is related to the previous king. And so this statement, he's crippled in both feet, you know what that says? Listen, he's not a threat though. You don't have to do away with him. This bloodletting can stop. He's crippled, He, he won't pose a threat to you. Now, can I step out of that story for a minute and into ours? Isn't it true that we often question people's motives, and maybe rightfully so at times? But you know whose motives I think we question a lot? It's the king, king of our lives. Because we'll come here and we'll, we'll sing about his love and we'll tell people that he loves you and we'll have people tell us that he loves you. But what do we really think God thinks about us? What do I really think God's motives are? I think we often misinterpret God's motives in pursuing us. We often misinterpret the king's motives in pursuing us. I, I remember another time in high school, I was sitting in class and first hour is when, um, like there'd be school announcements and stuff like that. Well, the, one of the messengers from the office comes in and she hands a note to the teacher The teacher's like, and it happened to be Spanish class, actually. And yeah, so teacher said, Senor Nathan, you're needed in the office. And I was like, wow, that was in English. I understood that. Great. Thank you for that. And I'm terrified. So I'm walking down, and and you got to understand in Columbine, where the foreign language classrooms are, are on the farthest possible corner away from the administration that you can get. And Columbine has some long hallways, so you can imagine the walk. When you've just gotten summoned to the office. So I'm walking down this long hallway and I was like, oh my gosh. This is because I took an extra cookie in the lunch line the other day. By the way, hot lunch, chocolate chip cookies at schools, incredible. Anyway, um, I'm in trouble for that. Or, oh my gosh, I, I don't know. I started thinking up stuff I did. I probably robbed a bank. I probably, I don't know. So I'm walking down to the office and I walk in. And I hand my pass to Anna Cabrera. Anna Cabrera, actually, she's right there. She's been a part of this church for years and years and years. I was like, here, sat down, and and she's just looking at me, and I'm like, this is terrifying. What, what are we doing here? And she said, actually, I called you down here. It's like, okay, this is more frightening than the principal right now. I had happened to share a devotional at church the day before. I had been in church like two months. At ever. And I'd shared a devotional the morning before, and she said, Nathan, I just wanted to tell you that God encouraged me through your devotional yesterday morning. That was the last thing that entered my mind. I mean, I, I, I had lost control of my bowels. It was, it was bad. <laughs> and yet I think of it every time I get up. Anna Cabrera. What if, what if God's not out to get you? What if he's not out to get you? And yet we misinterpret his motivations in pursuing us, don't we? And you want to know why? Because we're going to see next in the conversation. It is the giant of shame. The giant of shame gets in there and look at how the giant of shame works. This is verse verse five, uh, four. Where is he? Where is this son of Jonathan? The king asked. Zabah answered, he is at the house of Macir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makur, son of Emile. When, look at this name, Mephibosheth. I was still in a class a couple of weeks ago. I'm so glad we've moved to naming our kids Brian and Chris and Jenny, okay? Because Mephibosheth can get you in trouble if you pronounce it wrong, okay? When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And it's this next piece I want us to sit on for a minute. I will restore. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. Now, if you could see a map of all the land that belonged to his grandfather Saul, suddenly, Mephibosheth is a rich man. But riches or not, amount or not, do you want to know what the heart of the king is? King David, who is often referred to as a man after God's own heart, you want to know what the heart of the king of our lives is? It's that word, restore. 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 What's that thing in your life, in my life, that needs to be restored? Because did you know you have a heavenly father who wants to restore that area, that thing, that person? And I don't know how it works. Sometimes maybe you get a glimpse of it in this life, but he wants to do it for all eternity. He wants to restore, and not only restore, he goes on. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. What happens at a table? What happens when you're eating with someone at a table? You wanna know what happens? Relationship. Do you know what this statement is saying? The king, Mephibosheth, the king, does not want to eliminate you because of who who you're related to, because of your bloodline. He does not want to do any of that. You know what he wants to do? He wants restoration and relationship. And what was true for Mephibosheth is true for you and me. We have a king who wants restoration and relationship. And it's an incredible offer. And I think we have an enemy who knows that. And that's exactly when he sends the giant of shame in. Look at what Mephibosheth replies. Verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, "What is your servant?" That you should notice a dead dog like me. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Where where there's this incredible offer and you can hear God loves you and you can hear God wants to restore and yet all we can think about is what do you want with me? I mean, what worth do I have? You know what that is? That's the giant of shame. The giant of shame says, you know what? I have no worth, so I don't belong here. Except it's usually more than Spanish class, isn't it? It's life. No matter the area, no matter the relationship, shame will invade every action, every reaction. Every interaction, the giant of shame will cry out, this is his language, I don't belong here. And oftentimes, you know what it's tied to? It's it's our past. For Mephibosheth, the background of his story, there was a battle, his grandfather Saul died, His, his father Jonathan died, and his caretaker picked him up to run away with him, and she fell, and he was crippled. In both feet. And so you can imagine this boy growing up looked around and he saw that other people could do this and other people could do that. And yet he looked at himself. And how many times must he have thought, I can't do anything. And now he's in the presence of the king. No wonder his statement is, what do you want with a dead dog like me? See, we misinterpret God's motivations because you know what? It's shame. Shame sometimes, oftentimes, wants us to tie our identity to our activity or lack of it. For Mephibosheth, he looked at his identity as worthless because he couldn't do anything. What do you want with a dead dog like me? We all do it. In fact, I wanna try an experiment right now, okay? I'm gonna say a series of things and I want you to just think through what do you get focused on? Ready? Ready? You're great, 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 you're not. You're great, you're great, you're great, you're great. And what do we remember? I'm not. You can hear 10 you're greats and one you're not. And you know what we'll do? We'll look for reasons to support you're not. Except you know what happens? Here's how it looks in our relationship with God. God says, "I love you, I 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 love you." And the giant of shame gets in there and says, "Except for except for that one time, except for that area, and so here's what we hear. I love you, 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 except for, I love you, I love you, I love you. And what do we camp out on? Except for. This raised a question for me this week. As I studied this passage, I went, what's my except for? What's that area of life where I'm going, I know he loves me except for, except for that one thing I did, or that I do, or that one thing I can't do. Do or that I regret. And I want you to keep that area in mind because I believe with all my heart that's the area, that is the area that this next part God wants to use to speak to every single one of us. Take a look at what happens because now the king is going to set the record straight. Verse 9 Then the king summoned Zabah, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always, look at that word, always eat at my table. Now Zabah had 15 sons and 20 servants. If you do the math on that, the king has just arranged for 36 people at any given time to be taken care of Mephibosheth. It's incredible. Zabah replies, then Zabah said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. Now I wanna stop there for a minute because over and over and over, you may have noticed in this passage, there's this idea in this word that keeps coming up. Servant, servant, servant. And somebody's identity as a servant is tied to what they do, to what they do. And you see it over and over and over. And that's where we live, isn't it? Don't we tie our identity to our activity, what I can do, or what I can't do, or what I've failed to do? Keep that in mind as we look at the next verse. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the kings. What, what word would you expect? You may know the word that comes next, but let's talk for a minute about what we'd expect. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the kings. If it's based on this passage and all the words we've seen up to now, we would think servants because we emphasize Doing. And we live in a culture that says, you know who earns a spot at the table? Those who do. Those who perform. Those who earn it. Let's look at what it actually says. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Wait a second. Sons? I I thought it was servants, I, I thought it was about what I do. I thought it's about my performance. I thought it's about earning it. And the king says, no, no, no. This is not about your doing. This is about your being. Like one of the king's sons. You want to know what the refrain throughout scripture is? You're a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of the king. In fact, centuries after this conversation, there was a king the king, King Jesus, he was telling some people a story and he told them, and you've only heard a billion sermons on it, but there's a good reason why. He's talking to a group of people about a son and this son went to his dad and he said, dad, you know the inheritance? You know that money you were going to give me once you die? Can you give me that now? And I don't know what the father must have felt. I can imagine. But the father gave him the money. In the son, it says he, he went off to a faraway country and he squandered the whole inheritance in wild living. And he finally gets to the end of his rope. Things don't go well. And he's actually eating the same food that pigs are eating. And he stops. And he goes, oh my goodness. You know who has it good right now? My father's hired servants. So I'll go back to him. He made a plan. He said, I'll go back to him. And I'll say, father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he goes back and he sees his father and his father runs out to him. And he says, father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then you know what line he didn't get out? Make me like one of your hired servants. And you know why he didn't get it out? Because his father wouldn't let him. His father said, no, you're a son. And you are back. You were lost and I found you. Your identity is not what you do. It's not your activity. It's your being. And that's how I see you. See, Mephibosheth, you thought. And prodigal son, you thought. And Nathan, you thought. And every single person in this room, you thought. You thought that your place at the table was earned through your doing. And the king says, no. Shame made you feel that way. Shame made you feel like you couldn't even come to the table because of your doing. But I'm here to tell you, it's because of your being that you belong at that table. You know what you're seeing here? You know what you're seeing here at the table? You know what you're seeing here in the prodigal son story? Is that the king wants you a part of him, not apart from him. The king wants you to be part of him, not apart from him. So three years after, three years after standing in Spanish 2, saying, I don't belong in here. Okay, you ready for this? Senior year, it's the end of the year, and I'm in Spanish 5, okay? Don't ask me to speak a lick of Spanish because I don't remember anything, okay? But we're going to have this Spanish feast. There's like an end of the year celebration, and... um, Teacher kept me after class one day. It was The same teacher I had freshman year. She said, Nathan, I need to talk to you. Because there's this thing that you keep saying through the years. You said it freshman year. You said it sophomore year. You said it junior year. And I've heard you say it this year. And I just need to let you know before you go out into the world. You keep saying, I don't belong here. And yet, here you are. And I don't know what got you to keep taking Spanish, it was actually because of a couple girls I liked and my friends. It was like registration. It's like, what are you taking? Oh, crazy, me too. That's how I ended up in Spanish 5. Anyway, she said, you belong at this feast we're having for Spanish as much as anybody else in this room. To which I replied, ah, 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 en español, por favor. <laughs> the king wants you to be a part of him, not a part from him. And so as we read these last two verses of this passage, it raises a question that every single one of us needs to walk out of here with this morning. Take a look. Verse verse 12. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, Micah, I don't know. And all the members of Zabah's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And look at this verse. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And then it's just such an interesting ending. He was crippled in both feet. If you ever wonder if the gospel of Jesus Christ can be found anywhere else in the Bible aside from where it explicitly states it, right here, this verse. Let's walk through it for a minute. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Translation, Mephibosheth and you and I have the opportunity to live in the presence of God. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. Translation, Mephibosheth and you and I have the opportunity to live in the presence of God because a king, the king, Jesus, made a spot for us at the table. And then it ends with this. And he was crippled in both feet. Translation, and this is what Jesus, this is the gospel of Jesus. Mephibosheth and you and I have the opportunity to live in the presence of God because the king made a spot at the table even when we could do nothing. The king wants you to be a part of him, not apart from him. And when that moves from head to heart, you know what you realize? It's not about my doing. It's about my being. At the end of this life, God does not want a list of all our activity and all our doing. He wants to know that we acknowledged our identity and our being. So that leaves one question left to answer, to walk out of here with. Did you eat at the table? Because the king made a spot, and the king summoned you to come eat at the table. Did you eat at the table? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who is so big, and as we look at ourselves, it's very easy to go, I have no business being in your presence, and yet in the story of Mephibosheth, and all over your word, you remind us, you have every right to be in my presence. I want to restore what needs to be restored, and I want a relationship with you, and the reason for all of it is not your doing, it's your being. And you want to know where your being is? Heavenly Father, write this on our hearts. It's in the doing of Jesus Christ, in the work on the cross and his resurrection. And so this day, This day, Pentecost, when you sent your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, keep us mindful that you invite us to the table. Speak through your spirit to our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, West Bulls.